You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. I would like to talk about something today. And if you've been around me any length of time, it's not the first time I've talked about it. But I want to talk about something today that I feel like if you can see it, if you can really understand what I'm saying, it could save you a lot of trouble, save you a lot of trouble. Even in the Lord's Prayer, part of the Lord's Prayer is um, lead us not into temptation. Do you remember that? And deliver us from evil. And so I think there are trials we're just going to go through, Right? And then I think there are trials we go through we don't have to go through that we actually volunteer for, and we don't realize when we raised our hand. How many of you would like some help with not raising your hand for unnecessary difficulties? I think anyone in here would actually raise their hand for that. And so I'm going to be talking about something I call the Haman Principle, And I'll get to more of that later, but um, God can give us wisdom that will help us live more productive, trouble-free lives than we might live on our own. And one of the keys is to understand spiritual realities and principles. Uh, There's some that can save us from what I call unnecessary trials. Of course, not all trials you're going to avoid. Jesus made that pretty plain. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. He said, I've overcome the world. But some of these things I think we volunteer for and we never know we do it. And so I want to talk about one of those principles that I call the Haman principle, and it comes from a story out of the book of Esther. And it demonstrates a divine principle that I feel is important for all of us to understand And you can find this principle demonstrated in a number of other places in the Scripture. Actually, once you see it, you can see it in the life of Peter. You can see it in the life of Samuel. You can see it in the life of David. You can see it in the life of um, Elijah. There are a number of people where this principle holds true if you know what you're looking for. And so... And so, you know, when you're talking about principles, you're talking about, say, spiritual laws, like um, gravity is a natural law, right? And gravity brings you down, but there are ways to defy gravity, right? Well, there are spiritual principles, and even if you're in violation of them, there are ways to um, overcome these principles, and that's what we need to look at. We need to look out how we navigate through life. So... In Matthew 7, 1 through 1 and 2, Jesus taught this. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, somebody say that phrase with me. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so when you read this word judge, that scripture is, is written or, or is understood better, condemn not. It's about condemnation or criticism. Condemn not that you be not condemned. 
For with what condemnation you condemn, you will be condemned. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And so it's obvious we need to be able to make righteous judgments. We meet, we make judgments all the time. But I'm not talking about um, judging right things or wrong things. I'm talking more about a hard attitude of condemnation or criticism or even cynicism, which brings into your life things you would never want, and many people do not even understand how they got in their lives. And I hope we can see this, because Jesus here makes a very bold statement. He says, with the measure you use... It will be measured back to you. So who determines the measure? Well, somebody says God does. Well, God does, but here's how God determines it. He gives it to us. And he said, let's see what measure you use because you're determining the measure of criticism or condemnation and all that comes with it in your own life. So we determine the measure. Well, this idea wasn't original to Jesus' teaching. We find it also in the Old Testament. And this was the psalm I ran, ran across this week out of the um, Passion Translation. And I really enjoyed the Passion Translation. It really opens up things in a way some of the other texts do not. But in Psalm 9, 15, and 16, it reads this way. For the godless nations get trapped... In the very snares they set for others. The hidden trap they set for the weak has snapped shut upon themselves. Guilty. Now hear this next phrase. The Lord is famous for this. Say that with me. The Lord is famous for this. What, when, when you're famous for something, what does that mean? You're known for it. It's a, it's a regular, normal occurrence. The Lord is famous for this. His justice will punish the wicked. But then listen, while they're digging a pit for others, they are actually setting the terms for their own judgment. They will fall into their own pit. And then there's a little word that's inserted into a lot of these psalms that comes out. I don't know how you pronounce it. I think it's Selah which means consider the truth of this and pause in his presence because this is what the Lord is famous for. So three points to emphasize. God is famous for this principle and is behind it. Number two, these snares or these pits that we've dug are not only literal ones, but as Jesus said, they're directly related to how we condemn others with our words and or in our hearts. And number three, we can avoid unnecessary trials by guarding our hearts and repenting. That's a real ugly word. Repenting for harboring judgmental attitudes towards others. Now, I think if there was ever a season in my lifetime, and I'm talking about over the length of my life, almost 70 years, this last year, maybe even these last uh, four years, have generated some of the most vengeful, cynical, hostile, critical 
condemning narratives, comments, and atmospheres I've ever been aware of. And it's dangerous and it's deadly. Is everybody listening? Please do listen. But we can avoid trials by guarding our hearts and repenting for harboring judgmental attitudes towards towards others. So are you with me so far? Some some thought it thundered. Um, I actually wrote about the danger of being condemning or critical or cynical in the book Harbinger of Hope. If you have that book and you want to review it, if you want that book, I can get it for you, but it's in chapter 8. And criticism and cynicism are so prevalent now, particularly this season. But they're like evil twins, cynicism and criticism. Many regard cynicism as though it were a virtue, when in fact it's a powerful deception. It's like an emotional anesthetic for hurts and wounds. At first, it deadens the pain of rejection or disappointment or fear, but ultimately it numbs us to the mercy of God that heals us. A lot of people get cynical because they've been hurt. And this whole idea of cynicism or criticism or judgmentalism, um, uh, it actually feels good when you first do it. How many know what I'm talking about? That, that first time you crack at somebody because of something, how many of you know you really got a pretty good feel for it, right? Man, I, I really, yes, sir. Uh, and then, you know, maybe it's even self-righteousness gets in. Next thing you know, I'm going to tell you, next thing you know, you're negative, you're depressed, and you're not happy, and you don't even know why. Because people have used cynicism or criticism, which is a form of bitterness, as an, a personal anesthetic to cover up the pain that they haven't dealt with. It becomes a negative lens through which we see the world. It disguises itself as counterfeit wisdom. It poses as an expert. It finds fault with things and people. But actually, it's a very dangerous form of pride, and it's so subtle. Anyone can criticize. Where's the person that looks at imperfect people, negative situations, and brings redemptive solutions? That's what we're called to. We're called to make a difference, not reinforce the problems. That's what true wisdom does. It builds, it comforts, it encourages, it may correct, but it's always redemptive. I think about the very first psalm. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, it says, blessed is the man. Say that one phrase, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. What man? The man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. What does that look like? Nor stands in the path of sinners. What does that look like? Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Listen to that verse, that last portion of the verse. Whatever he does shall prosper. Those are pretty powerful, powerful promises. But here's what the blessed do not do. 
They do not sit in the seat of the scornful. They do not position themselves to scoff, to criticize, or to be derisive. Instead, they delight in the ways of the Lord, which aren't that way. Redemptive, consistently fruitful, and it brings prosperity into their lives. Now, the Haman principle. Our unrighteous judgments can determine our future troubles. And I'm going to show you this through the life of this man named Haman. I'm going to tell you an episode in my own life that proved it. The principle of reaping and sowing works in both positive and negative ways. The Bible actually says, um, what is it? Be not mocked or don't mock God. Whatsoever man sows that shall he also, or God is not mocked. That which a man sows, he shall also reap. We will reap what we sow, either in a way that blesses us or in a way that harms us. So we see this truth here in the book of Esther through the life of a man named Haman. And Haman was an arrogant and hate-filled man. And he hated another man named Mordecai, and ultimately it cost him his life. So how many of you have read the book of Esther recently? Not recently. Yeah, it's not a hot topic. Um, Actually, Martin Luther felt like it should have never been included in the Bible because it never mentions the name of God once. But what it does is it reveals one of the most amazing biblical principles that I think everyone should appreciate, needs to appreciate. Plus, it talks about how God saved the Jews from a very serious uh, threat to their lives. So Esther is a most memorable book. Like I said, Martin Luther questioned it because God's name is never mentioned. But in its pages, there's a neglected aspect of God's nature that we would be wise to embrace. So some of this I'm going to read. But the book of Esther begins with, and there are two ways to say this, Ahasuerus or Artaxerxes. Which one do you prefer? I will probably just continue calling him the king for my sake and yours too. So the book of Esther begins with, I'll say it another time, Artaxerxes, the Medo-Persian king searching for a wife. And so he chose a beautiful young lady named Esther who concealed her Jewish heritage from the king. She was an orphan. She had been adopted by her cousin Mordecai. Also Jewish, obviously, and a prominent member of the court who sat at the king's gate, a place of authority. After Esther had entered the palace to go through a process to be named queen, Mordecai paced daily in front of the court to learn of her welfare. While there, he learned of a plot by two royal officials to murder the king. Mordecai reported the plot to Queen Esther, saved the king's life, but no one ever, no one ever informed the king, that Mordecai had done that. But it had been recorded in the um, official history of the nation. Well, Mordecai soon ran into this man named Haman, another member of the king's court, who was powerful and arrogant man. Mordecai, being a godly man, refused to violate his conscience by bowing to acknowledge Haman's position of authority, which deeply offended him. His wounded pride fed a growing hatred of Mordecai. 
ultimately he conspired to kill not only Mordecai, but all the Jewish people as well. So at a given point, Haman introduced his conspiracy to the king, and he said, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of, provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it is not fitting for the king to let them remain. Well, remember, the king did not know his wife was Jewish. So Haman convinced the king to legalize the annihilation of all the Jewish people. He reveled in his position of favor with the king. He continually boasted to his wife and his friends of the glory of his riches and his prominence in the court. But even with such abundant honor, whenever he saw Mordecai, he seethed because he refused to bow before him. So, Haman's wife and friends came up with an idea. They told him, why don't you construct a 75-foot gallows for the singular purpose of publicly hanging Mordecai on it? 75 feet. you know how high that is? That's like a seven-story building. I mean, that was quite, quite a gallows. That was a very bad move. At this part of the story, you should probably hear ominous music foreshadowing trouble (laughs) for Haman. Okay, let's go on with the story. The night before Haman planned on hanging Mordecai, the king couldn't sleep. So he called for the historic record where he discovered that Mordecai, that's Esther's adopted father or cousin, that Mordecai had once saved his life, and he didn't know it. So the king determined to honor Mordecai for his courage. So the next morning, Haman goes into the king's court with the express purpose of gaining the king's permission to hang Mordecai. Before he makes his request, the king asks Haman what Haman himself would do to honor a great man. Well, Haman assumed that the king wanted to honor him. So he says, quote, Let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on in, on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes that he may array the man, then parade him on horseback through the city. That's Haman's idea of what the king should do to this person. Well, the king liked Haman's idea so much that he ordered Haman to do that very thing for Mordecai. The king said, hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai, the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. Haman returns home completely terrified. The tables are turning. Everyone realizes that the evil he intended for Mordecai would return upon his own head. Mordecai's favor and Haman's profound wickedness suddenly endangered Haman's own life. Then the royal court summoned Haman to a banquet sponsored by Queen Esther. Her hidden purpose for the banquet was to reveal Haman's plan to destroy Mordecai and all the Jews. So Haman comes to the feast Esther prepares, and on the second day, The king declares to Esther, 
What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given at my petition and my people at my request. For we have, for we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So the king says to her, who is he? Where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, the adversary and the enemy is this wicked Haman. And there was Haman right before the king. So Haman's plot enraged the king when he realized it endangered the life of his beloved queen. Then a close confidant informed the king of the hallow, sorry, the gallows Haman built to hang Mordecai. And king, the king commanded that Haman be executed on it. So you find this in Esther 7 verse 10. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. How sobering. One of the things I think about, I had been hurt years ago by this man. And after I was hurt, I was basically broke and he was basically very prosperous. And so I actually said to the Lord, Lord, I want you to take away everything that man has. Well, then my life got even worse. See, I don't think we realize that that we can be bitter or we can be frustrated or we can be hurt and we can hope things for people, like for their destruction or for their discipline. We could even call it justice. That's questionable. But what we don't realize is we are actually determining some of the things that can come our way. How many of you are listening to this? This is, this is, this really is important. Now my turn. I worked almost 20 years in the food service equipment industry and I earned my living selling restaurant equipment. I would bid jobs. I put a lot of equipment in like at Carowinds and Presbyterian Hospital. Then it was Presbyterian Hospital. This, it's, what is it, Atrium, with Carolina Medical Center, Cannon Memorial Hospital, restaurants all over town. That was how I earned my living. If I sold it, installed it, collected for it, I got a good percentage of the profit. So I started making a lot of money. Actually, for a while, my salary doubled every year. And then I got in ministry and things You know, I wasn't in sales anymore. But I did that for almost 20 years. Well, the company I worked for employed an installation crew. And they were paid hourly wages. And what they did was they would deliver and they would uncrate and set the equipment in place according to the blueprints for each job. And one installation crew member in particular became jealous of the amount of money I was earning. And... While I was out on the sales job, if they were in the 
in the office, they would, a lot of times they would sit at my desk and use my phone and eat their lunch. And uh, it was not unusual for me to find parts of his ham sandwich or other food particles, not just on my desk, but on my telephone. Well, that could have been an accident, but the cigarette butts he put out in my desk drawer weren't. And so it didn't take a private detective for me to determine who'd been sabotaging my office space. So over the weeks, I sort of fumed trying to figure out a way to get even with them. How many like this idea of getting even? Yeah, bad idea. Well, one day my opportunity came. He, he was a great big old guy. And I don't mean he was tall. And so one day I discovered uh, him outside in the parking lot washing the company installation truck. And I had on, I might even had on a three-piece suit. How many of you remember the days of the three-piece suit? I might even, yeah, I know I had on a suit and a tie. I might even actually had a, had a vest on, but I was standing like up in the, uh, the loading dock of the warehouse and he was down in the parking lot right there washing his truck. And then I noticed that he had laid the live water hose with one of those pistol grip. You know what a pistol grip spray hose is? You squeeze the handle and the water shoots out. I noticed he had left it, uh, really it was right at my feet. So I thought, now's the time to get even. I'm going to pick up the hose and I'm going to cut loose on him real good. Well, I was 30 minutes from an appointment, so I needed to do whatever I was going to do. So I picked up the water hose by that pistol grip nozzle and I zeroed in on his, and I quote, rotund, jealous carcass and aimed it squarely at his broad back. And just as I began to squeeze the handle, I relented and I turned it away just to the left of him so he wouldn't actually get wet. But what I didn't realize was I had picked up the spray handle backwards. So when I squeezed the handle, the water shot back at me right by my ear. So here's the point. If I had decided to soak him, I would have completed, completely soaked myself, suit, shirt, tie, and all to the exact measure I had determined to use on him. And actually, I did receive the exact measure because when I chose not to hit him, I didn't know it. I chose not to hit myself. I had mercy on him. I had mercy on myself, and I determined the exact amount. So, Jesus says, love your enemies and bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you so that you may be sons so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. And so Jesus is describing 
the attitude of a child of God. I did think, too, about this verse in Hosea. It says, thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furs of the field. And in the ancient world, people took hemlock to commit suicide. And it's as though this verse links to our truth that our unrighteous judgment, our condemnation of others is like a form of spiritual suicide, killing us, just as the Lord taught. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That cycle of criticism and cynicism and judgmentalism has to be broken. I believe in justice. How many of you believe in justice? How many of you think justice should be the order of the day? Well, it should be. But I read a verse in Hebrews. Andy, I was telling you about this a couple weeks ago, about Hebrews 12. Verse 24, and we have come to Jesus who established a new covenant with his blood sprinkled upon the mercy seat. Blood that continues to speak from heaven, forgiveness. A better message than Abel's blood that cries from the earth, justice. Now, Abel, we find in the Old Testament that Cain killed his brother Abel. And the Lord, when he rebuked, uh, Cain for doing it, he said to Cain, for the blood of your brother cries out to me from the earth. And this is a very strange idea or a very strange concept. But Abel's brother, Abel's blood was crying out for justice. But Jesus' blood says something not that replaces justice, but that is higher, that includes justice, and that's that's forgiveness. In James 2, and I'll, I'll close with this, and then I think maybe we could respond. James 2, verse 12, so we must, must both speak and act in every respect like those who are destined to be tried, destined to be tried by the perfect law of liberty, and remember that judgment is merciless for the one who judge others without mercy. This is the new, this was actually Jesus' brother, James. Judgment is merciless for the one who judges others without mercy. So by showing mercy, you take dominion over judgment. Or another way it says, mercy triumphs over judgment. So let me ask you this. As, as I spoke to you this morning and I read this to you this morning, how many of you can see places in your heart that you need to give to the Lord? Yeah, well, if that's you, and it doesn't necessarily mean it will be, if that's you, why don't we stand and let's, let's, let's repent. Let's ask the Lord to defy that law of criticism. Oh, Father, here we are. And many of us are standing to repent. Lord, we, le- we release those criticisms. We break agreement with the things we've said. 
the words we've spoken, and instead we do this. We bless those, Lord. We bless those that we wanted to see suffer or see our form of justice come to them. Because, Lord, you, you're the great judge. You are the one who knows. You, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God, the Scripture says. So, Father, we ask that your mercy would be extended, the kind of mercy that transforms and changes. And um, in all these different things, Lord, that we commit to you, we ask for your help. We ask that you'd open our eyes. You ask that, we ask that you would convict, uh, convict us um, and reveal to us uh, any areas that we see through the glasses of cynicism and criticism and hostility. And, Father, we ask that you bless our nation. Bless the United States of America. Bless our city. Bless our state, Lord, the two Carolinas. Bless the churches in these cities and in this region. Bless the government. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.